You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. We're in a series called Spiritual Warfare, and I'm going to talk with you just a little honestly. Today, during today's sermon, if you start to feel a little defensive, it's because there's a spiritual warfare for your headquarters that's going on. Before we talk about next week, when we talk about the spiritual armor of God and how to fight oppression and and how the enemy works against us, this week, Paul, as he's beginning to introduce this passage, he's going to begin to talk about our headquarters. And you realize in any military conquest, if you can affect the ability of the headquarters to communicate with people out in the field, if you can attack the headquarters, if you can kind of attack the senior leadership, then what it'll do is it will stop the movement of the other army. It's something you would actually want to do. And and if you can't handle what's going on in your headquarters, if you're not communicating well, if you're not living well, if you're not existing in harmony, then what happens is it weakens everything else. God's going to want us to work on our headquarters. And I believe that's exactly why the enemy, when it comes to spiritual warfare, wants to attack your home front your headquarters, your workplace, your school situation, and your employment first. He loves to attack those different areas. In fact, we need to be faithful with little so that we will be faithful with much. And God's word tells us this for elders who are in the church who are, uh, basically they are voted into senior leadership. And it tells us this about some of the qualifications of church elders. First Timothy 3, 4 says, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And that's how God's work works. That's how God's system works. When we're faithful with little, he expands that and makes us faithful with much. What often happens is we want to say, hey, what's private is private, but I want the public stage. I want the the larger expansion of my opportunity. And, And here's why you need today's sermon. The strengthening of your headquarters benefits all of the relationships in your life and the responsibilities you have in your life. That's why you need today's sermon. I mean, have you ever watched a leader implode? Maybe it's a public figure and their private life finally comes out and it just demolishes their their actual position of public leadership. Maybe it's a wife who causes disdain and division in her house or in her workplace. Maybe it's a teenager whose arrogance begins to isolate him or her from not only their immediate family, but eventually from a lot of their friends and they become incredibly lonely because they're just arrogant and isolated. Maybe it's an employee and this employee has such an attitude against the leadership at their company company that they actually override the value they bring to their company. What happens when that happens? You get laid off, you get fired, right? That's what happens. And then maybe it's a a boss who just lords their title over everybody else. Don't really care about anybody else. They just lord their positional leadership. And when you watch a life like that begin to implode, it's not a pretty thing, is it? It's not a pretty thing. But it's never gorgeous when that happens. In fact, it's the opposite. It's sad. And all honesty, it's just sad when you watch that kind of thing happen. And there must be a way. There must be a way for you as a believer, for me as a believer, for us to course correct our households and our marriages and our respect for parents and or our parenting of children and how we treat one another. These are your headquarters. Why don't you watch this video? 
The Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. All right, will you pray with me? God, we come before you right now, and we just say that we are children of God, and we know that your heart is to strengthen our obedience to you. You know that your heart is to strengthen our headquarters. And we know that the enemy is real and he wants to attack those things. So, God, we just say that we are children of God and the evil one cannot touch us. That, God, he has no place in this place right now, but that your spirit reigns supreme. We love you. In Jesus' name, together we said, amen. Well, I want to talk with you about the three areas that make up your headquarters. And you've gotten a hint there from the video. But the first one is this. It's your marriage. And you say, well, I'm not married. Well, then it's your dating relationship. How you're leading in your dating relationship. Second, it's your parenting. You say, I'm not a parent. Well, you're probably a child. And so it's how you respond and obey your parents. And third, it's your workplace. Your workplace. And you say, I'm either a boss or, and have employees, or I'm either an employee and I'm working for somebody else. And so it's your attitude to the authorities that God has put over you in those places. And those three areas, your marriage, your parenting, your workplace, are combined to become your headquarters, the place that brings stability to your life. And when we talk about areas like this, sometimes we get defensive, and particularly when people have walked through Ephesians chapter 5, in this section that we're going to look at today, people get a little bent out of shape. But I've got to tell you something. When I was a high schooler, I learned to ski as a ninth grader, and uh, my parents, were, I think, were afraid for me. They thought I might blow up my ACL or something, so they, they said, hey, let's put you together with a, an instructor so that you learn to ski before you try and go out and ski, right, with your friends. And so I had about a half-day lesson with an instructor, and I began to listen, because you go up the chairlift, and you get to the top, and you look down, and you're like, I'm going to die. Like, you know, it's like a bunny slope, and you're like, that's it, I'm dead, right? You just think, how am I going to do it? If you're learning to snowboard, you're learning to ski, right? So the instructor told me some things, and I watched myself respond to his leadership. And he said this, if you want to go and begin to start, you make your skis like French fries, right? So they're pointing straight. So now you start to get some momentum. You're going down the hill. And then he says, but when I want you to slow down, I'm going to tell you, make your skis like pizza. So you, you snow plow, you put your tips near each other and you begin to carve and begin to turn a little bit. And, and I watched myself as I began to, I listened to everything he said. I began to do what he said because not only did I want to learn to ski, but I didn't want to die. You know what I was doing right there? I was submitting myself to the ski instructor's leadership. Why? Because we do it all the time. If you learn to drive and you're with the driving instructor, guess what you're doing? Submitting. And if you don't, 
he's going to have to take over the controls and like slow the car down and stop, right? Because you're going to crash. You're going to cause a big mess. But as we're learning, as we walk through life, we're submitting. It's really a picture of what the church does to God, that Jesus is the head of the church. It's his authority. And Jesus has done something unique. Jesus has submitted himself to the will of the Father. He became flesh. He hung on a cross to pay for your sin and my sin. He laid aside his own comfort. He laid aside his own, what might be his agenda. He laid aside his own protection. And he made himself as a servant who took our sin upon himself on the cross. And then he rose from the dead and he's highly exalted. He's a name above every name because in his leadership, he modeled sacrifice. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And now the church responds to Jesus. You are that authority. I'm not that authority. I have ideas in my mind. I have impressions in my heart. I have things my flesh wants to do. I have things my mouth wants to say. I have all sorts of things. But we, over time, we're learning to subject our will to the leadership and the authority of God. We're submitting to him. He's taking responsibility for all our sin. And now we respond back to him with love and obedience. It's a beautiful picture. And that's what begins to happen. But sometimes when we use the word submit, people get all bent out of shape. But let me ask, have you ever submitted an application? What did you do right there? You submitted. You ever submit a term paper? You had to turn it on time? You were submitting. It's something we actually do all the time. But when it comes to interpersonal relationships, sometimes we get afraid that if I submit, I'm going to lose my identity or I'm going to lose control or I'm going to be a slave to a master. And that's the fear speaking of the evil one who doesn't want you and me in our headquarters to live like Jesus. So where's the balance? We're going to begin to look at that as we look at the scriptures here today. So I want you to write this down on number four. Submission is the two-way sacrificial path of love. It's two-way, right? Because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and we now as the church, we submit ourselves to Jesus. It's a two-way street. He served us by his submission, and then he, we are responding to him back out of love and respect for what he's done in our lives. It's a two-way sacrificial path to love. You say, how do I experience true love? You need to understand that submission is a two-way Sacrificial path of love. So Paul starts off in Ephesians by saying this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what does he do? Instantly he says, listen, husbands, wives, children, and parents, and also employers and employees, submit to one another. It's a two-way street out of reverence for Christ, not out of your goodness, not out of if the person that you're, that you're married to or you're working for or that is your parent is a perfect person. That's not what you're asking. The question is, we're submitting to one another as a two-way street out of love, out of reverence for Christ. He goes on then and says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord, right? Because that's what a Christian does, is what the church does. We ought to be submitting more and more our lives, our behavior, our wants, our flesh, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We, he's taken responsibility for us, but we're putting ourselves under his authority. We're allowing him to do that. It says this, for the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And this passage has been abused and twisted and people get all bent out of shape about it. But again, we're talking about the two-way street of sacrificial 
love. He goes on and doesn't leave the wives only by themselves. He goes on to talk about husbands. Husbands, listen up. Husbands, love your wives. Wow. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, right? Christ submitted himself we give our lives to Christ. The two, Christ and us, become together the church of which he's the head. The two became one in the same way he's talking about marriage. He goes on and says this. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I want you to write this down. A man's greatest need is R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Now, I want you to know something, because we've talked about this before, that... Aretha Franklin was the artist, but she was not the author of that song. That song was actually written by a man. And they tried it with one male R&B artist. It didn't really take off. Aretha Franklin took that song and it went skyrocketing. Now listen, does a woman need respect? Absolutely. But is it her greatest need? No, it's a man's greatest need. Because a woman's greatest need is love. A woman's greatest need is to be loved. And this is huge because what we see here is that a man has need. He needs love as well. But his greatest need is to be respected. And if we're honest in the room, those of us who are married, so often when we fight, it's because maybe someone feels unloved and the other pe person feels disrespected. So let's say it's the man. If he feels disrespected, if he feels you know, not respected, then he's going to act unloving toward his wife. And the woman, the wife, is going to say, well, you're not loving me, so I'm not about to give you respect because your actions toward me are very actually disrespectful and unloving. And so what happens is those two people get on the crazy cycle. So what happens is he goes, well, she's not loving to me, so I'm more disrespectful. And she's saying, you're more unloving to me, so I'm not even going to give you respect. And so this crazy cycle happens, and you're like, we're on the treadmill, and we don't know how to get off. There's two hamsters on the treadmill, and they're running. They don't know how to get off. And the scriptures are clear that the one who sees himself as the more spiritual is the one who needs to step off the crazy cycle first. Why? Because that momentum happens. That person's going to run and find out that, oh, my goodness. Now, that person's still showing love to me, but I'm being incredibly disrespectful even when they've been loving to me. Or that person's showing respect to me, and I keep being unloving to her. And what happens is it breaks the crazy cycle. And some of you, that's how you relate. You don't know any different. And maybe you want to write that down, that the way to break the crazy cycle is that the one who sees himself or herself as more spiritual is the one who steps off that first. Why? Because they submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They take responsibility for their half of the crazy cycle and that begins the process by which God's Holy Spirit speaks to the other party. 
That's how that works. So I want you to understand this. And Paul talks about three different parts of marriage. I want to unpack those for you uh, for a moment because I think this is where people get misunderstanding and bent out of shape. First of all is this. He wants to talk about positional leadership. And this is this, that the husband leads his wife. He says it's a model of the church. Christ leads the church. Guess what? I don't lead the church. Jesus Christ leads the church. I'm an under-shepherd of the leader of the church, of the leader of all local churches, the leader of all gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-following local churches. Jesus is the head. So we submit ourselves to him. So a husband, positionally, his title is to lead his wife. So wives, you're allowing your husbands to take responsibility for you. Not demand that you follow some positional authority because I'm the husband I said so but that you're saying I'm allowing him to take responsibility for me. Second, the functional leadership, well, how does this leadership work? I mean, if he's got the title, what's the job description? And the job description is this, functional leadership. Husband sacrifices for his wife for her well-being. So he's going to use his title, his position, his leadership to serve his wife for her well-being. And guys, this is hard for us. Because you got to say no to your wants and your needs and my way or the highway. And you begin to say, what is best for her? And how do I honor her? And how do I love her like Jesus sacrificially loved the church? And there's a very real evil one who says, but if you do that, you're going to lose yourself. Just like he's saying to the wife, if you let him take responsibility for you, you're going to lose yourself. But that's because the enemy knows how to play the game to get two people in opposition to one another. And what I want you to show, which Paul argues very strongly here, is that the identity leadership is this. The two are one flesh. You're like, but if I let him lead me, I'm going to lose my, my identity. I'm going to lose my control. No, you don't understand your identity. Your identity is that the two become one flesh. And when you fight, I get you're fighting against yourself. Yeah, but if I lead her and she's not disrespectful toward me, then I'm going to lose my identity. No, you're not. You're going to serve her like Christ did the church. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And he prepared the path of peace for us, and we serve her. And guess what? The two become one flesh. Let me suggest this. When you're trying to maintain your independence, you're actually trying to take the, what God has made one, and you're trying to make it two. And when God takes two and makes it one, you can't undo what God has done. You're always going to have repercussions. Even if you walk through divorce, even if you do it, you've still got attachments. If you've got kids and you've got responsibilities and you've got custody issues and you've got heartstrings attached and you've got all these things. Again, our world is saying to maintain your identity, make sure you split up. And God is saying, serve one another love one another, submit to one another like the church does to Christ. And so we need to begin to look at that. And men, you take responsibility for your wives and, and wives, you allow someone else to take responsibility for you and you show him respect and he shows you love. And that is a beautiful picture of marriage. It's the picture of the church. But let me throw this out there. When you refuse to love or you refuse to respect your boss or your employer or your spouse, maybe you're a kid in here and you're like, I don't respect my parent because maybe I don't think they were respect worthy. And you're like, I'm going to withhold honoring and obeying and respecting you because you got to earn my respect. And when you're a kid and you do that, then you're basically doing the exact opposite of what Jesus did for the church, the model for you as a parent, as a child to your parent. 
And God's going to begin to work on your heart to show respect and honor to your parents. But what's going to happen is you're going to push back at that. Why? Because there's an evil one who knows how to shake up your headquarters. And so he's going to try to get you to fight for you. And I'll tell you why you don't want to show respect to your spouse or to your employer or to your parent. You're like, oh, I don't know why I don't do it. I do. It's because you don't want to. It's sin. It's the flesh. It's our human nature. And what Paul is talking about here is the issue of balance. Like in my knee right now, I just got a, an ACL after it's been gone, I'm going through all this rehab, and this week I'm at my physical therapy, and they're like, okay, see if you can stand on one leg. I'm like, yeah, no problem. They're like, all right, hold the wall so you have a little stability, like, you know, hold the table for a little stability. And they're like, okay, now can you let go and still balance? I'm like, yeah, no problem. He's like, close your eyes. I can't do it. I can't do it. If you close your eyes, if you move the visual reference, you can't balance. And what happens is when you lose your sight, all of a sudden your headquarters get out of balance. And you're going to fall. So we fix our eyes on the model. It's Jesus. What happens is we get the person in the way. We say he should do this or she should do that or my employer should do this or my parent should do this. And what happens is your parent or your spouse or your employer is blocking your view of Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to balance? You want to serve like I did? Then fix your eyes, your sight on me and I'll help you balance your headquarters. And that's a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in us. See, a godless world rejects the idea of Christian marriage. They think it's some sort of like subservient weirdness. But I gotta tell you, all of the religions in the world usually demean the value of a woman. But Christianity is so unique in, uh, compared to other religions in the world because it gives women, even in Jesus' day, a place of dignity and honor and unspeakable worth. And I want you to understand, ladies, that this passage on marriage in the is the thing that builds you up more than anything else. Why do you think the enemy wants to make you fight against the idea of submission? Because he knows if your headquarters is strong, your influence is going to be stronger. Your witness in the workplace and in the world is going to grow. But he doesn't just stay there. He goes on to talk about parenting. And he says this to children. Children, Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parents, listen to me. You must be the one who initiates. You must be the one who initiates training the Lord. You must be the one who initiates instruction of the Lord. I'm a new believer. Like, I don't know what to do with training or instruction of the Lord. And I said, that's great. Because you know what? You get to invite your kids along with you to learn what that looks like together. Let's figure out God's word together. Let's read it together. When we hear about some things, let's begin to apply that together because I, I just don't know if you're a newer believer. And so you begin to do that. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now, I know some of you are like, you can instantly think of the last time your kids got frustrated with you. And some of you, you're thinking of the time that you told them to do something they need to do that's actually a godly thing to do, and they just got frustrated by it. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, dads, you exasperate your kids when you don't train them in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. It's not saying you, they're going to get frustrated sometimes when you ask them to do what God wants them to do. 
They're definitely going to get frustrated by that. But that's not what exasper, exas, that's not what does that to them. <laughs> Exasperates them. What exasperates them is when you throw in the towel, when you don't take the initiative, when you don't take responsibility, when you listen to the lie of the world, the lie of Satan that says, if you instruct them, they're going to like not have freedom and they're not going to find their way. But let me just take that with diet, for example. If you're training your little kids to eat, they're going to choose sugar every time over vegetables. So your job as a parent is not to force feed them. Your job as a parent is to direct their appetites. And sometimes that means you need to eat your vegetables. But as they grow up, your job is still to direct their appetites, even when they don't like them. And so what do we do? We direct their appetites to the training and the instruction of the Lord. I read this week about a story about a young adult who moved back home. And his parents said, if you want to live in this house, you need to go to church with us every single week. And the young adult thought about it and just came to the realization that rent was more expensive than going to church once a week with his parents. And so he began to go to church with them. And at first he's all like this. He's like, whatever, I'm just here so I don't pay rent to my own house. And over time, the spirit of God began to tug at his heart. And then he fell to his knees and he gave his life to Jesus Christ over time. Why? Because someone initiated in his life what he wasn't going to do for himself. Parents, our job is to be in our kids' business. Don't believe the lie that says, let them go and on their own, they'll just figure it out. You know what that is? That's the lie of evolution. I just throw my kid in the ocean and he's going to meet some other organism in the ocean. They're going to crawl up on the sand. They're going to become this great designed you know, fantastic being with, with self-awareness and intelligence. It doesn't work that way in any other part of your life. So your kid's not going to turn out to be Mercedes. If you just throw him in the ocean, he's going to get waterlogged, he's going to go under, and he's going to find it tough to navigate life. So I want you to understand that that's our job. Our job is to initiate. It brings health to our headquarters, so we go after the heart of our kid. Is there expectation? Is there responsibility? Yes. But we're going after the heart. And neglect in that area will lead basically everybody in the family to think that their opinion, their value, their identity is just as equal as everybody else's. And that's not what God says is the relationship between the church and Christ. Otherwise, I go, well, I, honestly, Jesus, I think my idea is just as good as yours, so I'm going to live how I want, and I'm not going to subject or submit my, my behavior to you. Well, that's not allowing Christ to take responsibility for me. Let me tell you, one of the greatest problems with the modern-day Christian church, particularly in America, is that we want all the love and all the grace of Jesus, but we don't want to give his authority claim over our behavior in our lives. So we say, I want to live how I want to live, but God, please give me all your love. Please give me all your grace. You sacrifice for me, but I don't feel any obligation to submit my mind and be renewed in my mind, my heart, and begin to walk in a way that honors you with my heart, my flesh in a way that begins to balance my headquarters and honor and love you and those around me. It's the biggest problem in today's church. So let me ask, how are you doing in submitting to the authorities that God has put over you 
Some of you, it's, today's the day to put in your submission, like to submit, to say, God, I'm going to go ahead and begin to honor you as Lord. And he begins to bring health to our headquarters, but he's going to do it in a way that talks about slaves and masters. And people think that's weird, like slavery and masteries in the Bible. Well, it was a common institution in Paul's day. It wasn't going to change. It has changed, and praise God. But let me tell you, when you go to India, you will see families who've been captured who now live full-time in a brick factory, and they are forced to live there and work there every single day, and they have no one to appeal to, no authority they can go to to help them. There is modern-day slavery still at hand. So is Paul somehow endorsing it? No, he's saying, listen, it's a, in his day, it was something that was just, it wasn't going to change in society. But the modern-day application for you and for me, particularly here in the United States, is the issue of employees and employers. So we don't have slaves and masters, but let's be honest. We work our whole lives in indentured servanthood under somebody else until we can get to the point maybe to retire, and then we're freed up to serve the Lord with our extra time. But some people are like, no, I want to own my own business. I want to get out from under indentured servanthood. I want to have other people who work for me, and then they move from there. What do we have? We have the equivalent of employees, employers, slaves, and masters. The principles apply. So here's what it talks about right there. It says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only for when their favor, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of who? As slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So he's not talking about compliance. He's talking about a willingness to allow someone else to take responsibility for you because you're doing it as unto Christ. He goes on and says this, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. What's he saying? Your leadership, your influence is not based on your position. It's based on your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. See, we all go to work tomorrow, and when we go to work tomorrow, we have one boss. We all have the same boss. It's Jesus. We work at different places. You might say, no, my boss is the state. No, it's not. It's Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life, your value you bring to the culture God has put you in is as unto him. He is our boss in the workplace. So we bring the greatest value we can as a believer in Christ to those that God's put over us. But what happens is we got to get our own independence out of the way. And let me give you a couple things that I want to talk with you about. John Maxwell in his book, The 360 Degree Leader, has seven myths of leadership. And I want to talk about four of those with you real briefly here today. Myth number one, the position myth. I can't lead if I'm not at the top. And so you grumble and you complain and you gripe that maybe you got passed over the promotion and you say, I can't lead if I'm not at the top. And that's this idea that Paul's just talked about in scripture. But if I submit myself, I'll lose any influence is what you think. And the truth is you don't understand what leadership is. Leadership is influence and God will leverage influence in your life as you begin to follow him. So the position doesn't guarantee that you have any influence. Second myth, number five, the myth, the freedom myth. When I get to the top, I'll no longer be limited, right? When I finally get there, I won't be limited. 
And that's what some of you used to think. You thought that as a, as a child under your parents, when I finally get out of this house, I'll have no limitations. Guess what? You got limitations. And some of you feel that way. When I'm single, I'll have no limitations. When I'm married, I'll have no limitations. When I finally am the boss, I'll have no limitations. Listen, we always have limitations. Because even for the believer, our lives we subject under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're always going to have limitations. And we begin to think that somehow, if I can attain a level in the workplace and I'm free from nonsense, you'll always have frustration in your work as long as your work is on this earth. So we want to work in a way that leverages eternal reward. And that's what he's saying. Submit yourself to your employer because God will reward you for what you do in this life. We have the same boss. Next, myth six, the potential myth. Well, I can't reach my potential if I'm not top leader. Well, let me tell you, God will utilize your full potential regardless of position. Remember who Jesus drew around himself to be his disciples. A couple fishermen, he had a political zealot, he had a tax collector who'd abandoned the, you know, the, his nation of Israel and was collecting taxes for Rome. And so he had a bunch of other misfits that he basically drew around him to be the most influential people in almost the history of the world apart from himself. And so let me just say, you and I, as misfits, we're in really good company. And God will influence you regardless of the position that you're in. He will leverage the influence, the leadership that you have as you submit yourself to him, even in the workplace. Last one, myth seven, the all or nothing myth. Well, if I can't get to the top, then I won't even try to lead. There's some husbands in this room who just grew tired of trying to lead in their family and you just gave up. There's some wives in this room who just got tired of hoping to feel loved and you just stopped respecting. There's some people in this room who served in a capacity of ministry and, and ministry is hard and you got in an argument with somebody and you're like, well, if I can't be the top person, then I'm not even going to lead. I'm gonna, not even going to bring my gifts to the body of Christ if I can't be the top dog. Do you see how all that limits our influence and our leadership? Listen, if you're the husband who gave up, the wife who gives up, the child who gives up, if you're the worker who gives up, then you fail to understand influence. God wants to do great influence through you. So let me ask, which of those four myths are affecting your headquarters? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's how you respond to your parents or how you're parenting your children. God wants to begin to help you course correct and balance better so that your balance is far better even six months from now than it is right now. Write this down. You cannot be a great leader unless you first become a great follower. You're like, how do I grow in Christ? How do I grow spiritually? You don't become a great leader until you become a great follower first. That's the way that Lord, you become faithful with little, he makes you faithful with much. It doesn't say you become perfect, we're perfect in our righteousness because of Jesus, not because of us. But what you do is you become faithful with little. He makes you faithful with much. And if you want in your workplace, if you want in your future, if you have great ambition, maybe you're like me and you're an achiever, and you want to climb and you want to achieve in your area, the best way you do it is becoming a great follower. And in our world, it says, that, oh, if I'm compliant, then I'm not showing leadership. Nothing more could be untrue. 
God's the one who charts your course. He charts your employment path. He charts you uh, in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships. And he says, do it my way. The danger is we take our eyes off Jesus and we put someone else or something else in the way. So we got to submit to him first. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just think about your own life. I want just to ask, have you ever given your life to Christ? What do I mean by saying giving your life to Christ? I mean this. Have you ever allowed Jesus' death on the cross to take responsibility for your sin and your wickedness before God? Maybe some of you in this room, you've been too proud. I'm not willing to let someone else take responsibility for my sin. I should pay for my own sin. And so what happens? You hate yourself. You hate your body. You hate your life. And Jesus is reaching in and saying, allow me to take responsibility for you. So with your heads bowed, eyes closed, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, if you never say, God, I'm going to give myself to you, then today is how you do it. You just pray. God hears you. Just pray something like this. Jesus, today, I give you me. I believe you died on the cross, and I'm going to allow you to take responsibility for all my sin. You were buried You rose to new life. You conquered death because you're God. And so I ask you to wash me as white as snow. Make me a new creation on the inside. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, if you raise, uh, you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand anywhere around the room that you're just saying, today is the day I prayed that prayer. You might be in the loft. I got some friends up there looking for your hand, but you're just saying, today is that day, God. And believers, I see you right there in the middle, greatest decision you could ever make. You might be a believer in the room right now, and you're realizing, God, I need to come back and submit myself to your lordship, to obeying, to stop fighting for myself so much and to start obeying you. And maybe it's in your relationship with your parent. Maybe it's in relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's in relationship with your children. or Maybe it's with your boss or your employees. Let me pray for you. Jesus, today, we thank you so much for your goodness in our lives. We thank you for new life in you. We thank you that you initiated by sacrificing yourself for us first. We give you our allegiance. We give you the assurance of our salvation. We give you the right to be our employer above all other bosses we may serve under in our lifetime. God, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for new life here today. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing in India and beyond. God, we praise you. Thank you for bringing freedom to those who don't have a voice. And it started with your sacrifice on the cross, and we have experienced it firsthand. God, extend that around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. We